In AD 70, the second dynasty of the Pax Romana was about to commence. Its founder, Vespasian, earned his opportunity to claim the empire largely because of victories in one of the empire's most contentious provinces, Judea. In the early decades of the Pax Romana, however, the Romans didn't have any special enmity against the Jews. In fact, they allowed the Jewish people in Judea to continue their ancient traditions. The Jews may not have liked Roman rule, but many of them were grateful for the protections they were afforded, such that when Augustus took over the Roman Empire and became the first emperor, the Jews in Jerusalem offered sacrifices to God on his behalf. But the relationship between Romans and Jews would gradually sour during the first century AD, culminating in a lengthy and bloody revolt in which Jerusalem and the historic Jewish temple it contained were both destroyed. And so we begin this episode of the Pax Romana podcast. Episode 24, The Holy Land in the 1st Century A.D. The Romans officially took over Judea under the first Roman Emperor Augustus in A.D. 6. By this point, the Jewish people had grown accustomed to foreign rule. They had had Persian masters and then a few centuries of Greek rule, then the Hasmonean kings, and finally the Roman-backed Herodian kings. But Rome had a respect for this ancient people. And so when they took over Judea, they did so cautiously and gradually. They did not, for example, name Judea a province in its own right. It was instead considered a kind of territorial appendage to the established province of Syria, which was to the north of Judea. And the Romans allowed the more popular sons of King Herod to continue to rule portions of Judea. But Augustus also sent one of his prefects, and a prefect is a kind of governor, but not a civil governor, a kind of military governor, who acts as a direct representative of the emperor. And this prefect in Judea, as indeed all governors of all Roman provinces, really had two main objectives. One, secure order in his province, and two, collect revenue. Whenever Rome took over the administration of a territory, they usually began with a census of the population. And this census allowed the Romans to know how many people were in the province, where they lived, and it also gave them an idea of what property existed so that they could tax it, of course. But when the first prefect of Judea went ahead and took his census in AD 6, some of the Jewish people resisted. It probably wasn't a majority of the population, but it was enough. And they had a kind of messianic figure from Galilee to lead them. You might think this was Jesus. It wasn't. It was a man named Judas. Judas argued that the Jewish state should be ruled by God directly and that the Romans should be resisted and expelled from the Holy Land and that paying taxes to Rome was a form of blasphemy. So you can see why he opposed the census. He knew what was coming next. And so Judas and his followers began fighting, but not against the Romans. They began destroying the fields and houses of fellow Jews 
who complied with the Roman census. And these groups of radical bandits, we might say, they were essentially roving gangs of thieves and murderers, became the gestational form of the resistance group that would come to be known as the Zealots in future decades. And these Zealots would eventually get their opportunity to confront the Romans in an all-out war for independence. But what about the priests and the elite landowners in Judea? How did they feel about Roman rule? Probably a lot of them didn't like it. They certainly didn't like Roman taxes. But one thing that Roman officials were very good at was finding ways to elicit the participation of local elites in their imperial project. Some elite Jews, for example, agreed to collect taxes on behalf of Roman officials. Now, for centuries, the Roman model of collective taxes and tax farming had been employed in its provinces, and this would come to include Judea. How did this work? Well, back in Rome, wealthy and well-connected elites would bid for the right to collect taxes in a province. And then the highest bidder would then pay the Roman state for the contract. And this would be done before the taxes were collected. And then at this point, the tax collectors had to go and earn that money and ideally a little bit more to line their own pockets. So with the authority of the Roman state behind them, the tax farmers began shaking down the people in the province they had bid for, collecting the taxes owed according to the census that was taken. Now, much of the actual dirty work of collecting the taxes personally was done not by the people at the top of the tax farming scheme, but by local people because these were the people who knew the names of people. They knew where the locals lived. They knew how many people lived in each house. They knew what property people owned. And most devious of all, they knew which relatives to kidnap and torture for ransom when people did not pay their taxes. So this structured and brutal tax system was put in place in Judea in the early years of the Roman occupation. And as you might expect, it was a significant source of strife. So you can already see a few toxic elements being mixed around in the province of Judea. Cruelty, collaboration of locals, Jewish nationalism, foreign rule. These things all created tensions between Romans and Jews in Judea, also at times in Rome, so we know, for example, that Augustus's successor Tiberius eventually expelled Jews from Rome in AD 19. The Emperor Claudius did the same thing during his reign. And the Pax Romana's third emperor, Caligula, you remember that likable monster? Well, Caligula threw a bunch of kindling on the situation in Judea when he demanded that a statue of himself be erected in the Jewish temple. And as I mentioned in a previous episode, Caligula did not live long enough to see his demand fulfilled. And had he been able to get that statue built in the Jewish temple, it's not hard to imagine the level of outrage and violence which would have ensued. And why is this? Well, in Jerusalem, the Jewish temple was the center of the Jewish sacrificial system. The temple is where offerings of all sorts 
regular and irregular offerings, atonement sacrifices, celebratory sacrifices, all of these were offered to God. Prayers and blessings and psalms were proclaimed in the vicinity of the temple as well. Romans even granted the Jews the right, by the way, to collect temple taxes. And this is a very rare privilege for provincials to be allowed taxation power. But the Romans understood just how central the temple was to the Jewish people. Here was the house in which God dwelt. It was a holy place, and the Jews expected this temple to endure forever. But in AD 66, just a couple of years before Nero's suicide, the Roman governor in Judea decided to levy an additional tax in that province. And, and he confiscated some of the wealth for that tax from the temple funds directly, and he did so by raiding the temple with soldiers. Now, this province had experienced a gradually growing level of violence and crime and famines for decades. Now, this tax and the attack on the temple became a major financial strain and an invasion of the sacred space of Jewish religion. This event was a catalyst, and many of the various factions in Judea found common cause in opposing the governor. The crowds in Jerusalem rioted, and the Romans in turn violently suppressed the population of Jerusalem, enacting crucifixions and tortures. At this point, the faction now known as the Zealots rallied the peasants in the province, and also many educated members of groups such as the Pharisees and the Sadducees joined the Zealots in open and violent revolt against Rome. Now, at this point, Judea was still an appendage of Syria, and so the duty to restore order in that province fell to the Syrian governor. He marched a legion into Judea, assuming this would quell the violence, but at this point, a robust Jewish militia had gathered and defeated the Roman legion. Thousands of Roman soldiers died in that battle. And a kind of government then began to emerge in the province. Jewish coins, silver shekels, were minted with Jewish symbols and legends. And a formal military began to take over with commanders instead of just this militia. As this gestational Jewish state was forming, a lot of the radicals who had helped kickstart the revolt began losing their positions of leadership. And so they moved into Jerusalem. And it was, for all appearances, looking like an independent Jewish state might possibly come into being. It would be the first in centuries. But the Jewish people in Judea were divided and fractured. And the temporary peace of having destroyed the Roman legion gave these factions an opportunity to fight over power. In Jerusalem, the zealots were in control of the Temple Mount, and they were even at one point besieged by some of the other factions in Jerusalem, and civilians were increasingly being massacred during the infighting. The next year, in AD 67, Vespasian and his son Titus arrived in Judea under the orders of the Emperor Nero. 
Once again, the Jewish factions had a common enemy, and they were able to put it together and once again resist. But Vespasian did not have merely one legion with him. He had an army of at least 50,000 Roman legionaries, arguably one of the largest armies in the Roman Empire at this point. Vespasian took the province systematically. He started in the north along the borders of Syria, marching through regions like Galilee, an epicenter of the violence and resistance. He took towns and cities from the rebels, sacked several others, and in the fighting in the north alone, perhaps as many as 100,000 Jews were killed or captured. The surviving rebels became refugees, and they swarmed into the south, especially into the fortified city of Jerusalem, a city with three protective walls. The population of Jerusalem ballooned to between 600,000 and 1 million people, making it not much less populated than the city of Rome, the most populous city in the ancient world. And again, with so many bodies, so many different ideas, different aims, and different goals, the Jewish people in Jerusalem began fighting with each other once again. And the zealots emerged as the dominant party. And if you've been following the podcast, you know that in AD 68, Nero died. And with his death, the Julio-Claudian dynasty ended. And so it became an open question. Who would lead the empire? Vespasian wanted a decisive victory in Judea because such would allow him the right to claim that the gods had favored him and doing so would, of course, secure the loyalty of this massive army that he had with him. And so Vespasian's sights were in some ways divided. He was looking to Rome, but also to Jerusalem. He needed victories in both cities. Fortunately, he had his son Titus with him. And so he left Titus to capture Jerusalem and Vespasian made for Rome. And if you want to know what happened in Rome, you can listen to the previous episode, episode 23. But for this episode, we're going to follow the story of Titus back in Jerusalem. Titus moved quickly. He sealed the boundaries of the city in a suffocating siege and he wanted to deliver his father a victory as soon as possible. Titus threw his men against the city walls again and again, building siege equipment, attempting to take the walls, but often being beaten back. The Jewish resistance in Jerusalem became very good at burning and destroying Roman equipment and pummeling the Roman soldiers with projectiles from the walls. But there was only so much Jerusalem could take. And so finally, in AD 70, Titus destroyed a section of the outer wall and managed to push his soldiers through it before the fighters in Jerusalem could repair the breach. And from there, it was a matter of time before the Romans pushed through the second and the third walls. The last of these walls had only recently been built. It was still quite weak. And so in the summer of AD 70, the Romans finally made it into the city streets of Jerusalem where chaos took over. The violence and death was otherworldly, much of it described by the Jewish writer Josephus. Josephus had served as a general in the northern Jewish army, but he was captured and then switched sides, becoming vehemently 
pro-Roman. And we know so much about this war because he wrote it down in order to convince the Jews that the Romans were acting as the hand of God. As the soldiers sacked the city of Jerusalem, fire was everywhere. Blood ran through the streets. The zealots barricaded themselves in the temple, which led the Romans to attack the ancient structure. They tore down its stones one by one. They burned its contents. They looted its valuables, including many holy and historic relics. Of the few survivors of the sack of Jerusalem, any who participated in the revolt as leaders were executed, and most of the citizens of Jerusalem were sold into slavery. Vespasian, through his son Titus, had finally secured his victory. The aftermath of this war was incredible. Several cities and regions in Judea were completely destroyed and deserted. Jerusalem was a ruin. Jewish slaves were shipped across the empire. The Jewish elite were almost entirely wiped out, except for a few survivors and collaborators. And most significantly, the Jewish temple was gone, and it would never be rebuilt. And so this religion that had existed for millennia was forced once again to adapt. The synagogues became far more central to Judaism, and the rabbis replaced priests as chief religious authorities. Titus returned to Rome with the contents of the Jewish temple, as well as the most high-profile prisoners a triumphal arch was erected in Rome in honor of Titus and Vespasian, and it still stands to this day. If you walk through it, you can see temple relics, many of which had been kept in the holiest place in the temple, piled high and paraded through the streets of Rome. And to add insult to injury, Vespasian continued to collect the temple tax from the Jews, even though the temple was gone, a bitter reminder of their defeat. And Vespasian let it be widely known that the tax collected would go to benefit his new temple to Jupiter Optimus Maximus that he began building on the Capitoline Hill. And you'll remember from the last episode that the previous temple had been destroyed in the civil wars after the death of the Emperor Nero. And so with the sack of Jerusalem and the repacification of Judea, Vespasian had his foreign conquest and after more than a year of uncertainty and civil war, the Pax Romana was back on track. Thanks for listening to the Pax Romana podcast. For more information, including a list of primary sources and further reading, check the show notes. Music by Red Productions and Exacore. Follow Dr. Colin Elliott on X at profcpe or email colin at paxromanapodcast.com. Listen to more episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or just about anywhere podcasts are available. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Pax Romana podcast.